Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 62 of X-Lapsed, where we've got uh, we've got a biggie to talk about today. Uh, we are going back into X-Men. This is X-Men Volume 5, number 7, had an April 2020 cover date. And uh, like I said, we got, we got a whole bunch to talk about here. So we're just going to hop right in. Um, now, this is called Life Death, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Lionel Francis Yu. Colors by Sonny Go, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $4.99, so we're a buck more expensive than the usual books. And this one hit the shelves on February 26th of 2020. Now, I probably don't have to explain the significance of the name Life Death, right? I would assume not, anyway. This uh, is a callback to a story uh, about uh, Storm and Forge from way back in the long ago, but... uh, uh, you could find information on that a lot of places, probably. So we'll just hop right into the story here. We open on Krakoa, and we're at the Akadamos Habitat at the Sextant, to be more precise. A young redhead wakes up, and, uh, you know what, gun to my head, prior to the roll call page, you could have given me a thousand guesses, and I never would have guessed who this is supposed to be. I would have guessed every redhead we've ever heard of. And I never would have gotten it. It turns out that this is Melody Guthrie. Now, this is the former Arrow. A-E-R-O, not like, you know, bow and arrow, but arrow, like, in the sky. Now, this is a mutant who had lost her powers during M-Day. Now, she's here in Krakoa with some fellow Guthries, Cannonball, Husk, and Icarus, because there's about to be an event. Oh, what an event. Now, it's called the Crucible, and we're going to learn a lot more about it as we roll on. For our purposes, we learn here that the Crucible was given the green light. So whatever this event is, it's been given the thumbs up, and it's ready to go. And what's more, it's scheduled to actually go down today. Now, roll call. Melody Guthrie, Paige Guthrie, Sam Guthrie, Joshua Guthrie, Cyclops, Wolverine, Cypher, Nightcrawler, Exodus, and Apocalypse. And then, of course, credits. Now, we shift scenes to uh, Summer House, to... uh, what is probably the scene that most comics enthusiasts, ex-fans or not, are most familiar with about this issue, thanks to how our uh, vaunted comics journalists kind of blew it up. Now, here, neither Wolverine nor Cyclops can sleep. We, we know they both live at Summer House. And we see them sitting out here, and they're uh, either watching this, this, the Earth rise or set. I don't know what time it is or which way they're facing, so I couldn't say. Wolverine ain't in a chatty mood. However, Cyclops sort of kind of is. Now, Scott says that he and Jean are going to be taking some young mutants on a trip to Chandelure in the Shi'ar, you know, Shi'ar space. And we saw him cut that deal with Gladiator in order to get a gate erected on Chandelure just a few episodes ago in the most recent issue of uh, New Mutants. Or maybe two issues ago. Yeah, it was the last Hickman issue. Now, Wolverine talks about all the beautiful scenery to be seen on Chandelure. Which includes Genie in a bikini. To which Cyclops responds with Scott in a Speedo? To that, Wolverine laughs and asks, Well, who could say no to that? And, well, uh, that's the panel that launched a thousand fanfics, or at the very least validated several thousand that were already written. And uh, we'll talk more about this later, uh, as, believe it or not, we actually have more story to attend to. Not that the, uh, you know, the CBRs and the bleeding cools of the world care about any of that. It's all about the sensationalism. It's all about riling up people. But we get story. Cyclops asks about the Crucible, right? And whether or not Wolverine will attend. Logan says he will not. Scott asks if Logan thinks the Crucible is a good idea or if it's somehow wrong. 
and Wolverine doesn't really answer. He gives sort of a libertarian answer, I guess you could say. He basically says, it doesn't matter whether or not he agrees with the concept, everyone has the right to make their own choices. They don't have to like it, which it would appear that neither of them actually do, but they don't really have a say at this juncture. Wolverine reminds Scott that neither of them sit at the big boys' table, right? Neither of them are part of the Krakoan Quiet Council. He suggests that if Scott's still conflicted, maybe he ought to chat it up with a priest. And with that, Cyclops leaves to find one. Now, Scott passes through the gateway hub on Krakoa, where for a single panel, we can see Doug Ramsey and Warlock sitting in opposite chairs. It's only one panel, though, and uh, it's unsettling as hell. It's very, very strange. Uh, Doug's right arm looks normal and not all techno-organic-y in this panel as well, so... You know, we know that they're sort of kind of merged, or maybe they are just merged. I, I couldn't say, but uh, when Warlock's on panel, Doug has a normal arm. When Warlock's not on panel, he's got the cybery arm. Anyway, Cyclops asks if Doug knows where Nightcrawler is and is given directions to a perch where Kurt usually hangs out. And so Scott joins Kurt up atop this perch, where they have a great view of some of the marvels of Krakoa, including a building with like a fork-shaped towers on top of it. Now, Kurt says uh, that they know that the structure is hollow, and yet there's no way to get inside the thing. We learn that Wolverine even tried slicing and dicing his way in, but the building, like, healed itself. It kept repairing itself just as quickly as Wolverine sliced. Now, Kurt reveals that uh, this one time, he decided to do a leap of faith, and he bamfed into this hollow tower. And what he found inside was uh, almost beyond description. He'd sort of described it as everything he could ever want. It was as though the structure was built just for him. It was perfect. From here, Scott and Kurt briefly talk about faith, but it doesn't really go anywhere just yet. Scott's, you know, he's all stoic and kind of unyielding here. Really doesn't uh, doesn't seem to have patience for the, the direction the conversation's going, but it will eventually go there. Now, the discussion eventually reaches the concept of the crucible, and they're both struggling with the idea. Which we readers, I mean, we don't know, we don't have the foggiest indication what any of this means just yet. So Kurt distills the concept down to the fact that uh, he asks Cyclops, like, are we supposed to just sit by and watch a mutant die? And that's kind of an oversimplification, but at the same time, it's exactly right. And of course, we will dive much deeper into that as we move forward. First, our scene shifts to Exodus having something of a camp out with a bunch of young Krakoans. And they're all talking about the Crucible as well. Exodus confirms that this is the first Crucible. Now, you know, Dictionary.com defines a Crucible as a, a severe test or trial or an extremely challenging experience. And this is a figurative definition, which is based on the literal definition, which is that of a heat-resistant container used to melt metals. So I guess it's, you know, you're under pressure, you're facing a trial, ipso facto, blah, 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 we have a crucible. Now, Exodus asks a young mutant with a Quentin Quire haircut to tell him what he thinks crucible means. Now, the child responds with, a crucible, the crucible is where a broken mutant has to die so they can be an unbroken mutant. Starting to make sense? Starting to, starting to ring any bells there? If, uh, if you think if you think where you know where it's going you're probably exactly right now Exodus confirms that what the child said was true but adds that it's not the entire story and so we get a brief retelling of what the pretender the Scarlet Witch did back when uh, you know when Joe Casada was trying to stick it to Grant Morrison for leaving Marvel back in the mid2000s you know that whole no more mutants boner thing that totally undermined everything that Morrison built for four or five years. So with those three words, Wanda managed to depower or break one million mutants. However, with the gifts of the five, now a depowered mutant can die, and when they're reborn, they can come back as whole. You know, they will have their powers. But for this, it's not enough for them to just die. It has to be more than that. And uh, we're going to get there soon enough. First, let's hop back to, to Scott and Kurt. Scott inquires as to the rules of the Crucible. Not so much what they are, but how the Quiet Council came up with them. Kurt's a little taken aback by this. He's surprised that Scott hasn't already discussed this with Jean. 
And Scott says, you know, hey, we've been busy. I, we keep, I keep forgetting to ask. Which, uh, that doesn't pass my smell test, but we're going to put a pin in that for now, and we'll revisit it later on. Kurt then asks Scott if he discussed it with Emma. And Scott says he was scared to, because maybe he didn't want to know the answers to this question. Because uh, I guess Emma could be a little bit blunt. And so our men head into a portal, and they arrive at Crucible. And boy, we get a lot of cameos here. A lot of uh, a lot of nice scenery. <laughs> a lot of set dressing here. We see Celine, Dakin, Forge. They're sitting at the standing at the portal. There's a silhouette of who I'm assuming to be Kid Cable. Uh, we see Rockslide and Colossus are here inside the place. This it's an arena basically. We've got Professor X, Magneto, Vulcan, Havoc, Storm, Angel, Gambit, Emma Frost, Strong Guy, Skin. I mean, it's a regular who's who, and it, it even looks like Guy Gardner Warrior is in the crowd from when he was all all Voldarian and gross after Zero Hour. Now Cyclops and Nightcrawler they head past the Guthrie clan. And Melody is wearing a wreath of flowers around her neck and her head, and I'm not sure if that's part of the ceremony of Crucible or if it's just uh, what she chose to wear for this uh, for this day. Now we learn a little bit about the concept of Crucible here, and the way Nightcrawler tells it, it's almost a measure of risk mitigation. Now, from what the child said at the little Exodus campout, the the, the Exodus jamboree, uh, that. A broken mutant, that is to say a depowered one, can die and come back whole. Now, if depowered mutants realize that all they gotta do is die, and then they'll be brought back as powered and whole again, then really, what's to stop those one million depowered mutants from committing suicide all at once? And I mean, from both a moral and logistical standpoint, that'd be a nightmare. So... The council had to make a ceremony of it, a thing of it, something you'd have to petition for and then earn your death and rebirth. And so, here's Crucible. Now, the camera pans from looking at Melody, who's standing in this arena, to showing us her point of view. And before her stands, hey, or, or is it just Apocalypse in every book not called Excalibur? Either way, you know the fella I'm talking about. Now, he asks Melody to look around her and asks if she envies everyone there and their powers. Melody responds in the affirmative. He then asks for her name, to which she replies, Arrow. Apocalypse stops her, says, no, that's, your, that's a mutant name, a name that, for the moment, she doesn't have any right to. She tells him that she's Melody Guthrie. He tells her that Guthrie is a good name and a good family to be a part of, and also, what a tremendous disappointment she must be to the rest of her kin. You know, she's got no powers, which... Yeesh. Now, Cannonball, we see Cannonball in the crowd, and he considers calling this entire deal off right here and now. But Husk is able to get him to, you know, settle his tea kettle for a little bit. Apocalypse continues to rile Melody up, asking if she's willing to abide to what the Scarlet Witch had done to her. And she says, oh, hell no. He informs her that, uh... Yeah, they're about to fight to the death, and that at the end of the day, it's little more than a literal surrender. She'll be surrendering her life here in battle. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. She will not be leaving the Crucible alive. He makes sure she understands this, and she does. And so they lift their swords and they advance toward one another. As this scene is playing out, Nightcrawler and Cyclops continue their conversation. Kurt suggests that, you know, this is a little bit reckless, isn't it? He then thinks about how they're still so new at this. I mean, sure, they have land, they've got Krakoa, right? They've got a government which is still nebulous and in its sort of in its relative infancy, right? I mean, it's new. And uh, he wonders here exactly what it was all founded on. He comes up with concepts like hope. Anger, inevitability, arrogance, to which I'm thinking maybe it's a four-way tie. Cyclops asks what Kurt's opinion on all this is, and Kurt, he doesn't have one. But he's got a truckload of questions that he feels he needs answered. He starts thinking about his own faith, about what happens to our soul after we pass on. He thinks about the resurrection event that we saw, the big one, the shoe drop that we saw in House of X number 5, when he, Cyclops, and five others were brought back to life after the Mother Mold mission. And he wonders, do we still have our souls? 
Are we still us? Very, very heavy stuff here. And Scott, Scott doesn't seem all that bothered. Uh, all he knows is that for the first time in a long while, he's happy. So it's kind of a case of like, hey, if this is wrong, I don't want to be right. Kurt continues. He, he ponders immortality, which is sort of kind of the case here, isn't it? You know, resurrection protocols make it so none of them will ever truly be off the table, so to speak. And I almost wonder if there's any mutants with like a Krakoan version of a DNR. You know, where instead of it being a do not resuscitate, it's a do not resurrect. Possible, right? It's possible. And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about last wishes in just a bit. Now, Kurt continues. He's really struggling here. He says that even now, with Krakoa and this new way of life being so novel, he's already seeing cracks in the foundation. And that's interesting. It's very, very interesting. And uh, I would love to have, for him to have expanded on that. But uh, right now, it's just breadcrumbs. And I'm, I'm okay with that. He brings up the concept of wills. You know, we talked about last wishes. He asks Scott if he's heard of them. Of course, he knows what wills are, but wills in the in the, the form that they're in on Krakoa. Because they, they mean something totally different, wouldn't they? You know, these aren't like, you give my, my belongings to my loved ones. This is, you know, this is the flavor I want to come back as. Cyclops confirms that, yes, he's heard of this. And Nightcrawler asks for his two cents on the subject, to which Cyclops suggests that, yeah, this is probably going to be a problem somewhere down the line. Maybe sooner than later. As this discussion's going on, of course, Melody, she's still fighting. She's doing her damnedest to fight back Apocalypse, but, I mean, come on. It's Apocalypse, and she's a tiny human. Apocalypse tells her that uh, this is all in her control. All she's got to do is stay down, and he'll end it for her. She tells him to go F himself, and lunges in for another attack, and this pleases Apocalypse. She's earning this death. Back to Kurt and Scott. Now, here's something we've kind of, sort of, brushed up against in our discussions over the past few months, but never actually hit head-on. Nightcrawler talks about the Crucible as a way of making mutants whole again. That much we know. We've, we've learned that today. But then a big ol' heavy question is dropped right in our laps. Why should this opportunity be limited to those who have already lost their powers? Why not... Tweak each dead mutant to be the best that they can be. And we've talked about in-egg manipulation before, right? And what that might mean for a resurrectee. But, I mean, let's, let's build on that here. Nightcrawler, in fact, does build upon that. Instead of just making, say, any dead mutant come back as their best version of themselves, why not make them even better? Cyclops suggests that if that were the case, then every mutant would write in their wills that they'd like to be reborn in Magneto's body with Magneto's powers. And Kurt reveals that, yeah, he's read that one. A Krakoan mutant actually put that in their will. Cyclops is uh, reaffirming that, uh, yeah, this is going to be a problem. Put a pin in that idea for now, and we'll, we'll revisit it in a few minutes. The Krakoan battle continues, to the point where poor Melody is disarmed and left to use her tiny human fists against the mighty Apocalypse. And she doesn't back down. This, of course, pleases Apocalypse greatly, who finally gives her what she's been after. Death. Two panels later, she's crawling out of a gold ball, good as new. Storm does that whole culty intro bit and invites her to stand before her people. And in fairness, it is far less culty than it was in House of X number 5. Scott and Nightcrawler, they're still chatting. And Scott asks, uh, I'm sorry, Kurt asks Scott to describe what he's seeing in a word. Is it miraculous? Is it glorious? Is it wrong? By now, it seems as though Cyclops is kind of getting bored with Nightcrawler and his questions. Um, but I guess, like, if you ask a man of faith what he thinks about a situation which is heavily rooted in things like this, maybe you ought to pack a lunch because they are going to talk your ear off. Cyclops really should have known better. Apocalypse asks how Melody feels, to which she says, whole. He welcomes her back and invites her to use her long-lost powers, and with that, she flies. We wrap up with Nightcrawler, who is still watching and talking. He suggests that he wants to start a mutant religion. Which, uh, what in the hell even is that? <laughs> we'll maybe find out another time here, but that is the end 
of X-Men number 7. Uh, next episode, we'll be talking about Excalibur number 8. But boy, we've got a lot to talk about, don't we? I almost don't even know where to start. <laughs> now, one thing, it's kind of fitting that we're covering this issue directly after our discussion of X-Force number 8, as they have some very similar themes at least insofar as whether or not a mutant has a right to die, or the ability to choose to die might be more accurate a descriptor. This is probably going to be a labyrinthine talking time segment here, because my thoughts right now are (laughs) very much scattershot, but I will try to keep with a semblance of linearity. No promises. I might have to actually write out full paragraphs worth of notes here, rather than relying on brief sentence bullet points. I don't want to miss anything, and I fear I still will. But uh, if if I if you feel like I did miss anything that I th- should have commented on, definitely bring it to my attention, and we can discuss it in the uh, in the mailbag in uh, subsequent episodes. So uh, I figure maybe we begin relatively light. Let's get that scene out of the way, the opening scene or the second scene, I suppose it was, the Cyclops and Wolverine scene that took social media by storm for about 15 minutes back in the spring of 2020. Tell you what, it kind of sucks that this scene took place in this issue, as I feel like it distracted from everything else that happens here. You know, I mean, this is a very, very big issue. And all anybody could talk about was, do Wolverine and Cyclops like each other that way? Um, now, this scene was posted, tweeted, Facebooked, tumbled... It was all over the place for a couple days, right? Full of folks on both sides of the issue getting fairly heated about their position on the subject. I mean, even I, who I never use the front page of social media applications. All my bookmarks go to my notifications. I don't, uh, I don't look at front pages. I, I think it's, uh, for the most part, social media just isn't for me. It's mostly like low effort, uh, attention grabbing, um, yeah, really not my cup of tea. So, uh, which is to say, like, if you ever want to get a hold of me on there, you need to tag me because I'm not gonna see I'm not gonna see something on the on the front page. So, that said, someone who does not use the front page of social media, I still found myself bombarded by this one scene. You know, it it made it past my buffer, <laughs> and uh, I reserved I reserved judgment then as. I, like many of the folks arguing on either side, lacked the context under which the conversation was taking place. I think it was uh, really baity for hot takes, and it was, um, what is that thing here? A lot of confirmation bias on both sides. Um, I reserved judgment then. Now I have a bit of context under my belt. All of this to say is, uh, Really? This is what everyone got their undies twisted over? This scene? There was nothing more to it. I I could see this getting under some folks' skin, right? And I can also see this getting other fans really jazzed. I can even see some of those folks who were really jazzed simply being jazzed because they knew it was going to upset other people. We're a very, very sad fandom that way. It's almost like we're eating our own tail here. I mean... We're dwindling. Our numbers, comic fans, comics enthusiasts, actual people who go buy comics, spend actual money on these books and keep these companies going. We're, we're, we're shrinking. And it feels like both sides of every issue in this uh, fandom are doing whatever they can to get rid of the other side. It's like you do realize that's not good for any of us, right? The more of us there are, whether you agree with people or not, the more of us there are, the better it is for the industry. But instead, we got to be sensational, we got to be provocative, and we got to push both sides out. So we are consistently dwindling, and it seems like with situations like this, we want to just slough off whole generations of readers at a clip. All that said, where do I stand? Well, first, I don't even know what it is we read here. Because it's near impossible to infer a tone of voice in comics, right? Um... I remember back during the Morrison run, there was a similar scene that really got under people's skin, and uh, whatever, it was more message boards than social media at the time, but it did did get a little bit, uh, I don't want to say viral, because none of this crap's getting viral. This is comic books. Like, 15 people still read them, right? So back in the Morrison run, 
Trish Tilby, Hank McCoy's longtime on-again-off-again, was unable or unwilling to deal with his recent evolution. Now, if you remember, pre-Morrison, Beast had his classic blue-furred form, the kind that we all saw during the 80s and 90s and into the animated series and stuff. Now, post-Morrison, and in the era of secondary mutations, Beast's appearance changed fairly drastically. He took on a lot of feline characteristics, and he even used a litter box. You know, it was a, a pretty big change for Beast in, in the looks department, and, uh, and I would assume the day-to-day uh, living, you know? Well, turned out this was a bridge too far for Trish Tilby, and so she breaks up with him. Now, Beast's response here is to take it all in stride, and he suggests, hey, no big deal. As a matter of fact, I think I might be gay anyway. Message boarders of the day ran with this, even though it was more or less confirmed that Morrison put the line in there as sort of a throwaway, or as a way for Hank to get a dig in on Trish. Flash forward 15 years, 16, 17 years, to this scene. I kind of view it the same way. I thought this was just Wolverine and Cyclops joshing with each other. I could be completely wrong here, and for all I know, we're getting scenes of them sharing romantic walks on the beach and shopping for a china pattern during X-10s, but I took this as just a friendly exchange and not a whole lot more than that. This might have been exactly that, or it might have been just like a, hey, any reader, see what you want to see here. Um, I don't know if there's any confirmation. I don't know that it matters. It really shouldn't. So, this is a case of it is what it is, and uh, maybe don't uh, don't be so incendiary about it on either end. But, that's out of the way. Let's get to the meat and potatoes here. The Crucible. I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> now, part of that is due to the fact that, I mean, I'm big on continuity, right? I've made that clear. I sometimes am a little too focused on continuity. A big part of continuity is context. Without continuity, we have no context for the things that happen and the consequences that... It's like that ABC behavioralism, right? You have the antecedent, the behavior, and the consequence. Here with continuity, we've got context, behavior, and consequence in a way. So... We need to know where we're coming from to place this. Then we have the thing happen, and then we deal with the fallout. So, the context that we're dealing with here has been so poorly dealt with and executed over the course of the past 15 years, and that point of context is M-Day. Over the course of these Dawn of X books, we're seeing thousands of nameless, faceless Krakoan mutants just partying and having a grand old time. In addition to the generic, unnamed mutants, we're seeing an absolute ton of cameos, formerly dead characters, formerly limboed characters, just a whole lot of folks whose faces we're familiar with. Never once did I stop to think, nor were we told that those mutants affected by M-Day were still depowered. I mean, let's, let's look at a character like Chamber. Chamber's in New Mutants. He is powered, but he was depowered post-House of M. But his powers came back like 10 years ago. So, I assumed, and this is 100% my bad, that after Hope Summers was born, elements of the No More Mutants boner just started to wear off. So many depowered mutants just started becoming whole again, before the Krakoan Crucible was even a glint in Charles Xavier's eye. So, when I see something like this, I just wonder why certain mutants were re-gifted while others were not. Was this something we were supposed to be aware of the entire time? Like, is this a shoe I should have been expecting to drop from from Jump Street? I really don't know. And I mean, the No More Mutants thing was... It was basically the 2000s version of the Legacy Virus. It's like, here's an idea, now forget about it. You know, the, the Legacy Virus was in, introduced after Executioner's Song, and Beast was like, yeah, I'll get on that. And then he didn't. And then years went by, and he's like, oh, yeah, we need to put a, we need to add a scene of Beast in a lab talking about the legacy virus. Just, just throw one in whatever random issue this month. And it's like, oh, maybe they're going to do something with it. And then they'd forget about it. With No More Mutants, same character. Beast was supposed to be looking into this. And every so often, we'd see him in a lab being like, oh, I need to work on this uh, mutant population problem. And, it's, and then it would go away. So it was, it was very... It was bungled. It was actually... To me, 
it was kind of petty and vindictive, as I as I alluded to earlier, with Casada really being irked that Grant Morrison left to go home to D.C. And I think it was a case of uh, we're going to do the thing, and uh, we'll eventually deal with it. Plus, you know, hey, we're going to start making movies pretty soon, and we don't have the rights to the X-Men, so screw them. And uh, screw them, they did. So let's discuss what The Crucible is. Now, it's a battle to the death where a depowered mutant basically surrenders themselves to be reborn. Not to dig too much back into our discussion of X-Force number 8, but we did talk a little bit about rebirthing ceremonies in the real world, also being born again into a faith. Now, I've got a lot of friends and acquaintances who were born again into a faith, and something that they all share is the way they describe the process. They more or less say that they surrendered themselves. They turned themselves over to a faith, a higher power, something greater than them. Is that what we're getting here? It's similar, but not, right? It's quite complex, and probably several levels above my pay grade to parse and analyze, but as always, we'll do our best. Let's stick with X-Force, X-Force number 8 for just another moment, because I feel like had the Crucible been a thing in the ether of Krakoa, Colossus and Domino probably wouldn't have had that discussion. And the discussion I'm talking about is the suicide one. Though, that kind of begs the question of what might be considered whole as it pertains to Krakoa and the mutants, right? I mean, whole... Whole can mean many things to many people, and of course I'm not talking about, like, a gaping <laughs> hole in the ground. I'm talking about whole as in being one, being complete. Now, whole or complete to someone like Apocalypse might mean something completely different to a Charles Xavier or to a Nightcrawler. I'm just freestyling here, but... To Apocalypse, whole might just mean with powers. You know, being fit to survive. It's sort of his gimmick, right? To an Xavier, or maybe maybe current year Charles is a bad example, but so let's just say a caring figure in the mutant community. To a caring figure in the mutant community, whole might mean happy, productive, maybe whole of spirit and mind. So an emotionally tormented character like Colossus, who still has his mutant abilities, might be considered as being broken, as in not whole, by this nebulous caring figure I just made up. To a Nightcrawler, wholeness has a whole other element to it, and that element is soul. He questions, even here in this issue, what happens to their souls after they die? Do they return to their reborn bodies? Are they reborn with a new soul, or perhaps altogether without a soul? And it's heavy stuff, especially when it's a theologian as Kurt as Kurt is. He's a devout man of faith, and uh, you can see that he's really, really struggling with this. And it's it's almost enough if we if we keep with Kurt's train of thought here, the 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 the, the train of thought that I just projected onto this character. It's almost enough to change your perspective on this entire property. A brief aside, if you'll allow me the indulgence. I grew up in the 80s, and there were two powerhouse toy lines that, if you were a young boy in the 80s, you couldn't possibly avoid. And they were G.I. Joe and the Transformers. I had plenty of friends who were into one or the other, or in many cases, both of them. And I mean... If you grew up in the U.S. during the 1980s, you'll know there were toys out the wazoo, lunchboxes, comic books, all sorts of merchandise, and, of course, cartoons. And I may have said this before. I know I've talked about it on the air before. I just don't know if it was my air or not, and I don't know if it was X-Lapsed. Out of the two properties, I could only ever get into G.I. Joe. Because with them, I was able to see actual consequences to their actions. If, say, you know, Snake Eyes or Duke were to die, not that they'd ever die in a cartoon show. The, the Joes and Cobra had, like, worse aim than anybody who ever appeared on an episode of the A-Team, so you never had to worry about that. But for argument's sake, let's say Snake Eyes dies. And that's it. He's dead. Gone. Something has to be dealt with. Conversely, if Optimus Prime from Transformers dies, well, you just rebuild a friggin' truck and you're fine. To me... There were no stakes, no consequences, no tension. And so I could never form any sort of attachment or worry. So we look at this now, 
Kurt's question of souls, right? And yes, of course, the concept of soul is nebulous. It's something that you can you either believe in it or not, right? Uh, and the thing of it is, you can't really prove that they exist, while at the same time, you can't really prove that they don't. It's wibbly-wobbly like so much of faith. Now, if these post-hox-pox X-Men don't have souls, I don't know. I kind of struggle with this, which I guess that's why I feel like having Kurt be our sort of kind of POV character for such a strange and potentially divisive event as the Crucible works so perfectly. And I'm surely projecting here, but it's almost as though Hickman himself was working out his own thoughts on the subject through Nightcrawler. Because uh, a lot of these questions are questions that I was asking as we were reading this. And uh, Kurt was basically in my head uh, asking all the questions that I would ask uh, seeing this event play out. Now, let me, let me, let me try to get back on track here. Uh, <laughs> I warned you that linearity was kind of going out the window here. Let's look at the Crucible as an event, okay? Now, this is something that people would gather to watch, even, even those closest to you, in the form of the Guthrie clan sitting in. They sit in here to watch their sister die. That's big. You're watching someone you love die. Let's go back to the concept of being born again in the real world. A lot of times, being born again happens, like, officially with a ceremony. Usually a baptism of some sort where you accept a higher power or something greater than you into your heart. And then, you know, you're dunked into a pool of water or however your chosen faith goes about signifying this, this transition, the, the, the event. Now, loved ones are usually around to bear witness to the ceremony. Is that what we're seeing here? Probably, right? I guess it makes sense in a way, while at the same time, it's uh, kind of twisted, isn't it? Now, let's look at Sam Guthrie. Sam is a very interesting... Um, he has a very interesting perspective here, I, th I feel, personally, because this dude doesn't live on Krakoa, right? And he's basically on the fringes of the current year mutantum at this point. We saw him during New Mutants when they mentioned... Um, Things like the captains. And he's like, well, what's that? He, he doesn't know the ins and outs of Krakoa the way the Krakoans do. I have trouble seeing him just standing by while his sister is run through by Apocalypse's sword. And yeah, he does go to stand up during the encounter, but it's during the trash talk portion of it, right? I don't know. I, I, I wish... I don't have very many complaints about this issue, but I do wish we would have gotten a little bit more into his head during this. I want to know what his thoughts were. Like, was he buying into this? Like the rest of the Krakoans appeared to be? Or does he have his doubts? Is he an outsider looking in? Is he worrying that, like, hey, the rest of my people have kind of lost their minds? What happened to my friends? What happened to my family? Why are they acting this way? These are the questions I would love to hear Sam answer internally because I mean you know I don't, I don't want to go too far off track but I mean I've been invited to, uh, to gatherings and uh, as an outsider looking in it could be very bizarre it could be very uncomfortable it makes you question things it makes you question your own beliefs as well as the beliefs of the people you're seeing believe and uh I, I think there was more meat on that bone that we maybe should have gnawed on a bit. Now, we can jump back to our usual hot take here, right? We can ask, is Charles Xavier and or Krakoa itself manipulating the way people are responding to this? That's been like our theory A, right, on this program. It's a whole lot to chew on here. And uh, to be completely honest, I think I just talked myself dizzy. I'm walking in circles here, so we'll... We'll let that rest a bit. <laughs> and we'll change the subject to mutant wills. It's an interesting wrinkle, to be sure. And it also, it's one that sort of comes, at least in execution, without precedent. Okay? During our info page dumps back in Hoxpox, we were told that reborn mutants can only come back with their own remade bodies with only their own remade minds. 
right? I mean, that's that's I didn't imagine that. They made a big deal out of it, and it's one that we read repeatedly because they said that they never tried putting another power set in another body or another mind in another body, with the exception being, at least that we know of, the only exception, Proteus regularly being born into Professor X bodies after he'd burned the previous one out. That was the exception that kind of proved the rule. And we were warned. We were warned that there could be trouble if that's the way, if, if we put the wrong brain in, a, in the wrong body or wh- however they worded it. I don't exactly remember, but I do remember it being it being hanky. So do these wills, these mutant wills, do they mean that we're going to start seeing some experimentation and or augmentation going forward? Or perhaps it's already been happening right under our noses and we didn't know. Are we going to see attempts at creating perfect selves or even better than perfect selves? Would we assume that from this, that say a Colossus, say he has a will that has to be reborn without some of his more inconvenient and painful memories? Is that where that's coming from? Is that is that where that's rooted? And I don't know how I feel about this. I, I mean, I'm I'm talking a lot here, and at the end of the day, I don't know how I feel about any of this. From everything we read in Hoxbox, this sort of freedom feels very much like we're entering, like, don't cross the streams territory, right? This could lead to huge changes for the X-Men. And while Hoxpox taught us, or at least me, that change isn't always a bad thing, I don't think I want to see this come to pass. I've been proven wrong before. And again, I am reading a lot into these statements. You know, I think a lot of this is food for thought rather than things that are actually going to come to pass. But my two cents, I don't know that I want to see that happen. Now, another thing I put a pin in during our synopsis was uh, Scott not asking Jean to explain the way they came about setting the rules for the Crucible. And I thought that was kind of odd. Scott's answer didn't feel genuine, which made my mind immediately go to the idea that maybe Jean is psychically blocking him from asking it. He says they've both been so busy, right? And yet, earlier in the issue, we know that they're planning a vacation. There's plenty of time and opportunity to ask, but still, he doesn't. Are the quiet council members purposely keeping the citizens of Krakoa in the dark? It's just some food for thought. I don't have any sort of foundation for this theory, other than my own you know, paranoia and pessimism. But, you know, more food for thought. Uh, let's, let's wrap up with uh, Nightcrawler's discussion, where he uh, re-decides maybe he'll start a mutant religion. First... What in the hell is a mutant religion? To me, that's a statement that means nothing. If he were to say, like he wanted to start a Catholic, a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist fellowship on Krakoa, sure, that makes sense. As the mutants are a diverse group of believers, just like any group of individuals, right? But then, what is a, quote, mutant religion? Is he going to be a chronicler of these early days of the Krakoan settlement? Is that his cross to bear? Is he doing it to preserve the mutant's way of life? Or is his cynicism starting to creep in, and he just wants to ensure that there's an accurate and honest record of these events in place? I mean, he does already mention that he sees cracks in the Foundation, which is very telling and very interesting. Another thing, I'm not sure where I stand with this. I'm not sure if this means Kurt will eschew his current faith, or if this will be sort of an amalgamated spirituality approach to Krakoan faith, if if what I just said actually means anything. <laughs> Let's consider our leading theory, right? Kurt's change of heart here kind of comes out of nowhere. Of course, he did just witness something very, very big, and this was the first Crucible, right? That much we, we know. But this isn't the first resurrection that he's been witness to. And, and hell, he's been part of one. So it's odd that when he's at his most, you know, doubting Thomas, he suddenly gets this wild hair inspiration to start a mutant religion. So to our leading theory, theory A, is Krakoa manipulating him? Does Krakoa see his skepticism as a threat? I mean, it's possible, right? I suppose all of this is to say... I really don't know what to make of this issue. 
But just like Kurt, it made me ask questions. And I think at the end of the day, that might have been the entire point. The setting, the event, the crucible, sort of just a facilitatory backdrop to the reader's skepticism and curiosity. And in that regard, Hickman and company pulled it off beautifully. Overall, I would say that this is an issue that'll stick with you as it did me. The last time we covered an issue of X-Men, X-Men number 6, I suggested that even if you dropped off from the X-Books after Hoxpox, that you should pick that issue up. You owe it to yourself to pick up X-Men number 6. I feel the same way here. This is a meat issue. You know, this is not a salad issue. This is actual Hoxpox Docs meat. It's an important issue. Unfortunately, it's also a buck more expensive than a regular issue, but what are you going to do? I'd say... If you aren't reading this uh, and just follow along with the show, well, thank you, first of all, but also grab this issue and enter into it with an open mind. I think you'll be happy and or frustrated that you did because uh, it's a hell of an issue. It's a hell of an issue and it raises so many interesting questions and uh, I hope I did its service. I I don't know that I did. Um, This is basically just me rambling and trying to make sense of it myself, and trying to decide where I land on so many of these these interesting topics. Um, There's no black and white here. It's it's a toughie. It's a toughie, and uh, I look forward to to everybody's thoughts on this issue, on these concepts, on our theories, you know? Um, These aren't just my theories. A lot of these theories have been discussed in our uh, mailbag section, and... uh, Sure, we're, we're kind of our own echo chamber in a way, but uh, what are you going to do, right? Now, before we get into the mailbag today, how about we do our Dawn of X Wave 1 Issue 7's power rankings here. We've read all five of the number sevens, and uh, let's rank them. Um, this is going to be a toughie, though, because, I mean, pretty much all five remaining Wave 1 books were really, really good. Uh, there really wasn't, like, a bottom-of-the-barrel book. I mean, there is no Fallen Angels anymore, so there's no safety bottom-level you know, bottom level book. So I, I almost feel bad. I feel bad for having to rank one as being the least good. I feel bad for putting one in the number five slot, because they were all really good. It's, it's like a, a case of, like, 1, 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, rather than 1 through 5. I feel like once we got past our opening arcs and found our footing... Business really picked up in the remaining books, and uh, to be honest, I considered not even ranking them, but I mean, old habits die hard, I guess. Uh, Before we go into numbers, I want to say all five of these number sevens are worth your time. So if I put something at the end of the list, that doesn't mean it ain't worth it. All of these issues were very, very good. Book of the sevens for me, number one is this book, X-Men, number seven. Um, It uh, gave me... Perhaps too much food for thought, you know? Um, just a really good issue. It's It brought me back to our earliest days on this program where I was just trying to make sense of things in the Hoxpox books and, uh, and being intimidated by discussing them because these are, I mean, there, there's some divisive stuff in this, uh, in this issue here. Everything from Scott and Wolverine scene, which I, I hope I handled adequately. Um... I hope my assessment that it was just a throwaway line doesn't uh, doesn't bother people. You know, um, I, I truly believe that that's a scene that uh, we were supposed to take what we wanted from it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Or just take what we thought made sense. I suppose maybe that's a better way of putting it. Um, so I mean, that's divisive stuff, and uh, the whole crucible, the whole the whole idea of the crucible. I think that uh, that could get it. That could turn into a heated conversation. So, X Men number one. Top book of the sevens here. Uh, number two is X Force, which another very very strong um, piece of business there. With our first, you know, post Hoxpox meeting of uh, Colossus and Domino, and just really strong stuff. Um, number three would be Marauders, which was another great issue. Um, four is Excalibur, which is an issue I finally enjoyed of that series, and five New Mutants, which was a great issue, but. Uh, one of the books has to come up with uh, at the bottom, unfortunately. So yes, my, my rankings. 1, X-Men. 2, X-Force. 3, Marauders. 4, Excalibur. 5, New Mutants. I, I look forward to hearing 
your guys' rankings if, uh, if you're following along still. But with that said, let's hop into the mailbag here. We have a letter from Damien who's talking about X-Men number 6, which is, you know, the issue right before this, the Mystique issue. He says, This is by far my favorite issue of X-Men so far. Mystique was one of the key dangling questions from the revelation in Hoxpox that Mora didn't want any precogs on Krakoa. I've been waiting for this shoe to drop. I love the revisit of the Mother Mold mission. It was clear from the first story that Mystique was up to something. She was out of contact for, par- contact for part of the mission, and it was great to have that confirmed. Also, it was, omnim- oh, easy for me to say. also it was ominous to see that the X-Men's actions possibly hastened the creation of Nimrod. When they showed the life that Mora, where Mora killed all the Trasks, it was stated that no action would stop the rise of AI, and here we've had that confirmed. And yeah, it's very, very true, and not something I, I really considered when uh, when I was when I was writing up the script for X Men number six. But uh, I tell you, it's both refreshing and reassuring to get these reminders. Right? Uh, it makes it feel like there was an actual plan for the Dawn of X story, the Dawn of X landscape, rather than just coming up with whatever the next story was going to be on the fly. I feel like uh, it's a current year comic problem where we have great ideas. But we don't know when to pay them off, and we just don't. You know, um, the one I always go back to is Rebirth, DC Comics Rebirth, where we got so much great stuff in that uh, one shot, and then they kind of just forgot about it. It's like, eh, we need to we need to tread water for a year and a half before we address any of this, and uh, it made it feel, well, it made it feel like probably exactly what it was, which was a hail mary. You know, we need to get some readers back, let's do this big thing, and uh, we'll figure out what it all means later. With Dawn of X, it's not like that at all. You know, Dawn of X could have been looked at as stunt storytelling, but it's not, because it was planned, and we're getting these bits and pieces, and everything is kind of falling into line. Whether we like it or not is a whole different story, but it all makes sense, it all fits, and it all serves the uh, the broader narrative, so definitely props for that. Uh, Damien continues, The most significant part of the story from my point of view was Mystique referring to Destiny as her wife. Claremont was hardly subtle with his depiction of Mystique and Destiny's relationship, but this is the first time on panel that it's been openly stated. This is a huge milestone for LGBT plus representation in comics. The earliest gay relationship in the X-Books is finally acknowledged on the page. And, you know, I couldn't remember whether or not this was the first time this was, like, actually stated on panel. I'll take your word for it, for sure. Um, It's probably due to the fact that, I mean, like you said, Claremont was hardly subtle, and it's been basically common knowledge to many X-Fans over the past several decades at this point. And I do remember when I learned of this relationship... um, it was probably early in my Usenet career, you know. I checked the Usenet, the X-Facts, the FAQs, you know, the Frequently Asked Questions. And uh, part of that was, like, the Claremont dangling and aborted plot lines, which I would pour over because I, I found them so interesting. And I found out that uh, that it was intended, or at least there were the leading rumor was that Mystique was going to be Nightcrawler's father and Destiny was going to be Nightcrawler's mother, which blew my mind as a as a, you know a young teen who frankly didn't know a whole lot about destiny at that point but i knew mystique and uh i i just thought it was really really cool really cool and something that i would have never guessed so loved it and uh, and now that it's it's officially in canon even better even better uh, Damien continues, The idea of Mystique burning down Krakoa has me second-guessing so much. She could be anybody in that situation. Or in any situation. Have we already seen her plotting against the X-Men? There are so many possibilities. And yes, another excellent point. And that could be another angle for some of the hot-take theories we've been floating throughout uh, X-Lab's journey here, right? And we've commented in several instances, today included that the X-Men aren't always acting like themselves. And of course, theory A is that we've posited that this might be due to some Krakoan or Xavier influence, right? Uh, We also had uh, the hot take here where we theorized that the characters that we're reading about might actually be clones, and the real ones are in stasis somewhere. And now, here's yet another possibility, in that maybe some of the out-of-character moments or exchanges might be due to the fact that Mystique is playing the role of whichever mutant we're reading about. 
it's very interesting, and it's, I mean, we're going to get full off all this food for thought, but uh, I, I love it. I love it. That's very, very interesting. Uh, Damien continues, I worry about a Krakoan gate on the Orcus Forge. I thought any mutant could travel through them. Isn't Karima a mutant? Could they, could they, could they be directly invaded by an army of Nimrods? Not something I thought about, but yes, that's certainly a possibility, right? I mean, it stands to reason. And part of me wonders if Hickman might have been, if you pardon the pun, planting a seed here in the hopes that maybe we'll forget about it. You know, there's there's a gateway on the Orcus Forge. We're going to show it here. We're going to show how it got there. Then we're going to throw it on the back burner. We're not going to mention it for a little while. And then when we least expect it, boom, we pay it off. And it blows us all away Because as we've been saying here Everything makes sense Everything is built into this narrative And it's beautifully done Beautifully done But uh, thank you so much for your uh, thoughts on that and for, the, uh, and for the mystique theory That we will add to our pile of theories Going forward And uh, we'll just have to make sure that Anytime I present it That mystique isn't elsewhere on panel Right? <laughs> So, thank you so much for, uh, for writing in, uh, Damien. It's always a pleasure. Uh, we also have a letter from um, our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG. And he says, Chris, my friend, I'm happy to say I finally caught up with every episode up to date. Lots of questions that I'm not sure I want the answers to. It's almost like a dream come true to see lots of my favorite X-Men together, but I'm not sure how I, that I like how it's being handled. And that's... These are the kind of messages that I want to hear, definitely. If I feel like, for the most part, uh, our discussions are positive on these changes, right? Of course, there are some things we don't like, there are some issues we don't like, there are some characters we don't like, but for the most part, it's a net positive, and that we're enjoying this, uh, this new take. So I-, I love to hear more about those of us who might be struggling with it, might not appreciating it might just be you know uh might just be waiting this out until things go back to normal that i'd love to hear from more people with that kind of train of thought uh mark continues i remember when i started reading and why i became a fan i remember thinking to myself this is it this is my team thinking specifically of the gold team and blue team and generation x because i'm a huge jubilee fan x-force and excalibur as well but then marvel started doing stuff i didn't like it not only put me off but it made me stop buying x books and uh i was very much the same way in the uh in the 90s and i've told this story probably too many times before but uh i had that uh you know that worm turn moment um, it was X-Force Volume... I'm sorry, X-Men Volume 2, Number 45. It was an overpriced, oversized, gimmicked book. And uh, I just had enough. It was a... Marvel was really, really abusing uh, the uh, the gimmick covers, as was the entire industry, of course. It wasn't simply a Marvel problem, but it was affecting the books that I wanted to follow, which uh, turned me off. And I realized that any month I can go into the shop, or any week I go into the shop, and uh, instead of paying a buck twenty-five or a buck fifty or a buck ninety-nine with the deluxe books, I could be stuck paying four or five bucks for a gimmick cover. And uh, I walked away. Always loved the teams. I never actually stopped loving the characters, but I just couldn't. I couldn't justify it to myself, and I, I wound up walking away myself. Uh, Mark continues, I tried keeping up from time to time, hoping it would get better, but after Messiah Complex, I was done. I'm thankful to you that you did this. It has helped me to know that Jubilee is alright. Also, I'm happy to hear that the other, my other favorites, like Rogue, Gambit, Bishop, and even Jerky Cyclops are. And uh, that was part, that was probably like the coolest part of the, uh, of the revisit early on, was uh, that I was seeing these familiar characters again. And uh, though it was an unfamiliar setting and contextually different, it was still the characters that I grew up, you know, uh, imagining I was fighting alongside, you know? I mean, that's, that's some stupid kid thing, right? But I think we all do it. But it's, it's nice to be reacquainted with, uh, with, you know, family in a way. The, the, these books are like a member of your family sometimes, and... Uh, which might sound really cringy, and I apologize if that's the case, but it's no less true, I suppose. Um, Mark wraps up with, Will I buy X-Comics again? 
While I won't say no, someday they may go back to being great. But for now, I'll rely on you for my extras. And again, thank you for your work. And I hope you get better from that cold. So <laughs> thank you. Um, no, I, I, uh, I definitely uh, understand why. I mean, I talked about my time leaving uh, as recently as uh, 2016, 2017 with the uh, Golden Blue, uh, the, the new takes on the Golden Blue books and then the Red and the Black and the Astonishing reboot and or the relaunch, I guess. And how that was just not for me anymore. And I, I, I walked I walked away, and uh, it was one of those things where I tried waiting it out. Um, I sat through a lot of weird stuff that I wasn't really digging, and just in the hopes that it would get better. I think that's something that comics fans have in common, um, where we... You know, we have those can't-quit-you books, right? We have those books where it's too difficult to let them go because we know that at some point down the line we're going to want them again, and then we're going to have to, like, run all over town and creation trying to fill in our holes, you know, fill in the gaps in our collections. At least that's me, but I am, you know, a little certifiable in that regard. But uh, at that point, I wasn't sure I'd ever buy X-Comics again. I felt like I... You know, in a recent episode, I talked about a tipping point. You know, when you get when your backlog becomes such that it's impossible to do its service. And uh, I was talking about podcasting, of course, but it's the same as, as comics. You get to a point where your backlog is you become a a slave or a prisoner of your backlog, and uh, there comes a time where you just have to say, "No, I'm done," and uh, and it's. You know, the point I'm trying to make here is that's what led me to stop reading wholesale back around the Golden Blue era. I had too many books to read, and I wasn't liking the ones I tried, so it was just like, okay, I'm going to get them, I'm going to file them away, and I'm going to weather this storm. And when things get better, I'll be there. And then I stopped, and then I stopped buying them. I stopped ordering them. And every once in a while... I would have that wild hair too. It's like, okay, you know, because the first time I got a DCBS shipment, a Discounts Comic Services uh, shipment that didn't have X-Books in it, it, it was heartbreaking. It felt wrong. It felt so wrong. I lost sleep over it, you know, which is kind of pathetic, but I mean, it is what it is. But I uh, I remember that first box I got where there was no, no X-Men books. There were no Marvel books, actually. It was all DC and, uh, and a couple of Image books. And it felt like the joy of opening that box was was different. It was, it was lacking because a part of me wasn't there, you know? And then I'd, I'd get these inclinations to come back every now and again, every couple months, really, every month. Every month when I'd put my order in, it was like, okay, let's see what they're doing over in the X-Books. And every time it would be like, nah, not going to do it this time. Maybe next time. And then it would get to a point where I'd reach another tipping point and I'd realize, like, wow, if I want to catch up, I'm going to need gold, blue, red, black, astonishing, Iceman, Jean Grey. <laughs> um, there were just so many. Weapon X, a Domino miniseries. There were so many books that there was just no way back for me for a little while there. And, uh, you know, thank goodness for dollar bins, quarter bins, Black Friday sales, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to do what I did in catching back up. But uh, I, I totally see the challenge, uh, especially if you're not 100% on board with what's going on. It's hard to justify um, the expenditure and even the time investment. And I know that you know, better than anybody or as well as anybody, I should say, because, uh, hey, we're all we're all comic fans, right? But thank you so much, uh, Mark, for writing in, and thank you even more for uh, for sticking around. It really means a lot that uh, that you'd still be listening um, to, uh, to the shows here. It, it really does my heart proud, so thank you so much. Um, now, with that said, let's... Uh, Let's move on to uh, the the closing here. Uh, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so a couple different ways. I'm on Ace Comics at uh, uh, I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter, and if you'd like to uh, you know tag me on something, that's cool because that's the only way I'll see it. Um, also, email uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. Uh, there's also blog notes and show blog blog 
blog posts and show notes. That's how I say it. At uh, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. This program has a home at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We've got a Facebook home at 90s X-Men. And, of course, the entire audio archives of the Chris and Reggie channel are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Also available on, you know, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I think we're on, uh, are we on Pandora now, too? Maybe we're on Pandora now, too. Anywhere you find noise, you'll be able to find us. So, if that's what you want. And, I mean, you're listening now, so you, you, you know where to find us. Last episode, I did uh, mention a call to arms here, uh, if you have any friends who might dig this show, please let them know that it's something that exists. <laughs> it would really mean a lot to me, trying to uh, to grow our little X-Lapsed family or the, the Chris and Reggie family of, uh, of listeners here. So uh, if you know anybody who's X-Curious, X-Lapsed themselves, or uh, just fans of the books who might want to yell at me for getting it all so wrong, please feel free to, uh, to share our link, share our show share our our little familial journey here so it would really really mean a lot but uh, i think that's where we'll put a pin in today uh, this might be the longest episode yet and uh still feels like i missed some things in this issue so if there were things i didn't comment on or things i said let's put a pin in it and i didn't revisit please let me know and we, we can discuss it in the uh in the mailbag but uh one giant thank you for uh hanging out has been over an hour, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your ears and your listenership and your friendship. Uh, really, really means a lot to me. But until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Different.